welcome to the Slow Twitch Podcast episode. Is it four B or or five, Ryan? This is the first time we've ever recorded two episodes in one day. You know what? Let's go with four B. Four B. Four B. You know, this is really kind of uh, a unique opportunity, um, and you know, circumstantially, like this is not the uh, opportunity we were looking for to have uh, Andrew Messick of Iron Man join us. Um, here on the podcast, but we're really extremely grateful that, you know, Andrew is here um, to talk with us here today. So Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, no, we had a little bit of technical difficulty, but here we are, we're ready to uh, have a little bit of a conversation. Ryan, why are we here to talk to Andrew real quick? So uh, Andrew is joining us um, to talk about uh, Hamburg and kind of you know, some of the uh, circumstances that went into the situation on Sunday um, and, you know, kind of some of the lessons that we collectively uh, as a sport can learn going forward. Um, and I, I think this is really kind of a, a unique opportunity to kind of have the leader here uh, join us. Thank you, Ryan. And, and thanks, Eric, for, for having me. And, um, I'm happy to you know, talk about what I can about what happened uh, last Sunday in the European Championship in Hamburg, um, which um, was, I mean, the events that people are most focused on um, are, are obviously what happened at the at the front of the field in, during the bike course, and you know what happened was a tragedy. Um, it, it was terrible. And we're in contact with those affected uh, and their families, and, and we're providing as much support to, to them as as possible. Um, and you know, it's um, you know, it's part of the race business having things go wrong. Um, but I think certainly in my twelve years of tenure, this is the the episode where things have gone wrong in the most public way you could imagine. Um, and while we've had incidents and we've had, um, you know, cr critical incidents in races before, we've never had one uh, on a live broadcast. And, um, and it was a, you know, it was a real challenge for the organization to, to cope with it uh, and, and to cope with what do you do on the broadcast, to cope with what do you do on the race course, to cope with are, you, are, are we in a position where we feel that it's safe to continue the race? Um there was a whole series of decisions that had to be made in real time by the team and, you know, decisions around what do we say to the community that's watching the race and when do we say it? And what are the responsibilities to say things quickly as opposed to the responsibility to make sure that the things you say are right and that they're said in the right sequence. And so all of that unfolded in a very, very public way on Sunday. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, we got a lot of things right, but we didn't get everything right. And so part of this, I, I think is, you know, it's always our intention to be better. It's always our intention to learn from the, the challenges that we face and, and as an organization find ways to continue to improve. And, and this is no exception. And so, um, I, I think it's important especially given that the extraordinary amount of information 
that has been put out there by various people uh, who may or may not be privy to, to what happened um, to try to clear the air and have an open conversation on, on, on what we did, um, what we've learned and, and what we're going to do differently going forward. Yeah. So um, I, I kind of want to start um, forgetting the broadcast for a moment, right? Like, can you talk a little bit operationally, you know, like what happens when you have kind of like a critical incident on course? Like what are the, what's the immediate concern um, and the decision-making process, you know, behind like, do you continue an event, right? So, so we have a critical incident protocol that's globally managed and globally administered and, and our operating teams on the ground are, are tasked with the decision about whether a race is safe to continue or not. Um, the focus always in a critical incident is making sure that the people or persons that require, in most cases, medical attention, get that and get it as, expedition, as expeditiously as possible. The, the questions around whether the race can continue are, are made by the teams on the ground based on consultations with the local communities, police, fire, public safety, about whether it's safe to continue. Um, and, and that question has to be answered within the context of, is it safer to continue or is it safer to not continue? Um, in my tenure at Ironman, to the best of my knowledge, we've only stopped one race permanently uh, once it started. Uh, largely because once a race has started, you're dealing with, in many cases, thousands of athletes spread across a course without a clear plan or a communication method to be able to tell them what to do and where to go and how to not create danger for themselves or others. Uh, it, and, and that one case was uh, at our 70.3 in Rappersville, where a mudslide in the middle of the race uh, washed out the bike course. And... And so we, we literally turned everyone around and we were unable to continue that race. But but over thousands of races over my over my career, it's the only time that we have stopped a race and and then not continued it. Um, our conclusion and the team's conclusion was that that once we were able to get medical attention to the people who were affected by that race, it was safe to continue. Uh, it was not as convenient as we would have liked it. Uh, many people on the bike course ha had to ride a little bit further. There were some diversions, but, but our belief was that it was safe to continue and that we weren't putting any of our athletes, our volunteers, our staff, anyone at undue risk. And so that decision was made to, to continue. And, and I, I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that that wasn't uh, a sound decision. Um, and, and, People have a knee-jerk reaction to do something, and and that's a very human reaction. And it, yeah, and 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 you're right, Andrew. You bring up a really good point because, and I think that was illustrated a lot, particularly with the the, the live broadcast and some of the reactions that we got from like Greg Welch and things like that. It's you know, it it was so shocking that it you you can't blame any of these individuals for how they reacted in, in that moment, because what would you do, you know, when you were there? So, and, and I think it's, it's worth talking about the broadcast. Um, 
you know, we as an organization have the critical incident procedures operationally that are very well understood and and are sound and have been honed and refined over years and years and years. We we don't have that to the same extent on the broadcast side. We've never we've never been faced with an emergency on live television. And and frankly, I, I think it's fair to say that we didn't get that right. And that that the way we handled the broadcast, and, and again, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone because everyone, everyone was in a position where they had never been before and were dealing with uncharted waters. And I think that in retrospect, we should have turned the broadcast off for some period of time. We should have just stopped broadcasting. And and we should have let things settle, um, but but not have this paradox that I think people rightly found really disconcerting where you're talking about who's gapping who and the sun is shining and it's a beautiful day um, when everyone knows something terrible happened. And I think it's that juxtaposition that, that a lot of people reacted to and, and we should have, we should have done better. Um, And it's a hard problem to solve. Uh, largely because, you know, we're a global company and these races take place. You know, I, I was in the United States, you know, where I've been for, you know, since my knee surgery. Um, our head of our, our, our head of media was working at our running event in San Diego. Um, and it was the middle of the night in North America when this was happening. And so I, I think if if something good's going to come of this, it'll be that we're going to start applying the same type of protocols and procedures around critical incidents on the broadcast that we have operationally. Um, because, because I'm, I'm sensitive to the fact that, that, that it, it was just an incongruity that, that I think struck everyone as wrong. And, um, and I wish we had to do over on it. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the, one of the difficulties that you face in in particular when it comes to broadcast, right, is that, you know, for lack of a better term, it's kind of a wholly owned operation, right? And it's from a communications standpoint and a broadcast standpoint, and, you know, like when it comes to a critical incident, right? Like, Comms 101, right? You can only say what you're 100% certain of, right? So it's really tough to kind of continue to talk about that um, all of the time. Whereas, you know, like the example that we had given earlier was like, say if it were Eric and myself who were the, the broadcasters, right? It was Slow Twitch that was providing the broadcast services. Like, because we're an independent news organization, like it's a little bit of a different conversation in terms of what we might be able to convey in that moment versus, you know, like where you guys are. And so I I think, you know, retrospectively, I I think you're right that like either a pause in the broadcast, like for however long in order to kind of, start getting something together probably makes some sense. Um, but I also don't 
you know, I'm less critical of the job that, you know, Greg and team were faced with in that moment. Yeah. And, and I, I believe, I believe that Greg and the team did the best they could. And, and, and that I, I, I find no fault with them. I think the, the fault lays farther up in the organization and, and we weren't able to provide them with the type of direction that I think, you know, they, they deserve. Uh, and ultimately that one's on me. Uh, I, I do want to come back to this question around timing of communications within our operational critical incident protocols is what we say to the media and when we say it. And our, our position has been that we won't make any comments around in particular injuries or, or, or deaths without having the approval of the community, public health, um, local law enforcement, and critically notification of the people of the families of people who are affected. And, and that takes time, but you, you can imagine a scenario. It, I mean, unfortunately you can't imagine a scenario worse. And that is that the family of the deceased moto driver found out that he was deceased because somebody said it on television and, or that his, or, or that his children or, and and so we have a responsibility to to not say things too quickly. And again, that's frustrating for people because people want to know what what happened. Are are, are people okay? You know, are, are is everyone going to be all right? It, it's a very human reaction, but we have to make sure that we don't do harm first. And right. and and that is to make sure that we've dotted the i's and crossed the t's before we can put out a statement that really talks about the, the, the implication on individual people. And that takes more time than we, we often like, but. So I just want to reiterate that the, the policy is that <clears throat> you don't go public with information about these types of situations until local law health have all been notified your team knows exactly what's going on and family members who have been affected have been notified directly from either AU and or the local health departments that would let them know that information. Correct. And, and there's very, very good reasons for those rules. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and they, in but, heat at the moment. But I think that's really good for people to understand because to your point, people want to know as soon as they possibly, like they want to know now it's that natural instinct from human beings. So I want to know if that person's okay, but if they don't know that there's a protocol in place, they're just going to get frustrated about that. But if they know that there's a protocol in place and why that protocol is there, um, they're going to save themselves the frustration of not knowing. And also kind of cut you a little bit of slack on the time I mean, frames. It's also the news cycle, right? Has just gotten tighter and tighter and tighter with social media, right? Like, you know, the the speed with which somebody had screen capped that particular part of the live broadcast and, you know, posting it everywhere on social, right? And so there's this expectation 
whether rightly or wrongly, that Iron Man's going to be able to immediately respond to that, you know, and to your point, like there's a process involved and you have to get it right because of the, I mean, just the ramifications and the responsibility that you have um, with that kind of information. We were talking earlier today on the podcast um, with Ben Canute, and we had about a 20 minute conversation about this particular topic. And, um, you know, one of the things that we um, were, were talking about and one of the things that we wanted to, to know from Iron Man is, you know, obviously you guys have been talking about this a while and this kind of segments into what you talked about earlier as far as, um, you know, things that you wanted to get out into the public. And that is, what have you learned from this experience so far? And, and what, if there are any, you know, concrete plans to have this not be an issue moving forward? Well, I think there's two things that are, that are coming into clearer focus. And, and you both know as, as members of the media who've been on motos in our races, that there is, there's a protocol for how we manage the front end of the race and and that there are you know there there are sort of rules and principles there's a person within the that sort of peloton of motos who is in charge of granting access and flowing athletes or flowing motos um and those motos have race officials they've got referees they've got broadcasts they've got still photographers and managing that front of the race. Um, and, you know, there's moto meetings for everyone beforehand, and I'm sure you guys have been to them. Um, and, and and there's a protocol around that. I think we're in the process of making sure and, and reviewing how that worked. Um, because the behavior we saw from the moto driver was inconsistent with sort of the rules of engagement that, that we have. And understanding why is something that's really important to us. Um, however, I would say as as triathlon has gotten more popular, it's gotten more crowded at the front of the race. And whereas historically there's been one camera moto, we had our camera moto, we had ARD, the German television, we had French television, we had a whole bunch of people who were super interested in Jan Fredino. And, and so it's getting bigger and more crowded at the front of the pack. Now, our, our moto plan, we believed was safe. And, and we knew the number of motos that were credentialed and were going to be a part of that. And we had no reason to believe that, that it was an unsafe number or that they were behaving unsafely. But we need to look at that again. And I've asked the team to do that and to have uh, a revised protocol for the next race that we're going to be broadcasting, which is in Boulder um, this coming weekend, to make sure that the front end of the race is safe, as safe as we can possibly make it. And so we're going to review that. And, and I think that's, lar that's a larger triathlon issue. Uh, it's not just us, but, but when you think of what the PTO intends to do, what's going to happen in Roth with those, those guys, the front of the front of the race is uh, it's increasingly crowded. And, and, and so 
being able to manage that effectively is going to be something that matters to all of us. The, the second thing that I've asked our team to look at is really much more around racehorses and, and to, be, to be much more clear and prescriptive about what constitutes a safe race course. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I have no reason to believe that the, that the Hamburg course wasn't safe. It met all of our operational criteria. It was approved by, by the, the municipality and the regional authorities. Um, and, and we had no issues beforehand that there were parts that were unsafe, that it was overly narrow, that there wasn't room for athletes to race with motos. Um, but, but it's also not lost on us that this accident happened on an out and back. And, and so, you know, out and backs are tighter, but a lot of races, our races, other people's races, a lot of races have out and backs on them. And so I think I've, I think it's worth us taking a dispassionate look at course requirements, especially in an environment where you've got lots of athletes and potentially lots of motos. And, and do we need to rethink in some cases, what exactly our courses look like. Um, and, and as everyone who's been involved in the race business, um, you know, we are, you know, we're, we're sensitive to the fact that across our industry, you know, the interaction of bicycles and motos and cars and closed roads and semi-closed roads, you know, we are, we're constantly making trade-offs. Because there's very few, very few courses that are truly closed. Um, and, and then the last thing I would say is that within the context of, of all of that, are there areas where we just shouldn't have motos at all? And, and with the possible exception of, of drafting officials, should we have places where, where we just don't send the cameras? Um, so all of that is, I've asked for all of that to be looked at carefully and quickly. Well, you do that in North America on a couple of courses. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, we've, I've been in situations a lot of times where um, either A, the out and back is just, it's not writable. Mm -hmm. We don't do it. Or B, um, you have to have a, you know, out of the 10 motos that are on course, four of them have access to that. And you've got to ask permission and you've got to have the right, you know, credentials and the right reasons to be out there. Um, and then there's just, you know, photographers or videographers that, that aren't doing live stream, um, like myself that don't even go into in and out backs anymore because they can get really congested, particularly in the front of the race when everyone is still together. Um, you, you know, one of the things that you said earlier um, <clears throat> about the the Hamburg race, has there been any change in that course in the last couple of years? Uh, the I mean, the courses change a little bit from time to time, but but it hasn't been large scale changes recently. Okay. Yeah. Um. One thing that you kind of mentioned was um, kind of what a safe course 
really sort of looks like for Iron Man and how prescriptive you are in terms of putting that out there. And out and backs are have been classically part of a lot of courses, right? Like and you know, there's been online chatter that there shouldn't be out and backs on any course that has a professional field. But um the counter and the thing I kind of wanted to ask you about is, you know, like out and backs a lot of times are the differences between having a full distance bike course and not and getting an event permitted or not. That's absolutely true. And it's part of the ongoing, um, the ongoing series of trade-offs that every race organizer at any level makes. Um, and, and so I think that all of us start with a vision um, that's of what's the course that you want. And in working with the communities, Ultimately, we're their guests. Um, there's roads you can use. There's roads you can't use. Um, and and we believe always that we're putting people onto a course that's safe. And we wouldn't put people onto a course if we didn't believe it was safe. And and so, you know, but you can be on courses that you believe are safe and bad things can still happen. And we saw that on Sunday. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, you know, from a situational standpoint, right? So you had, you know, the enhanced interest in Hamburg because it's regional championships, right? And then you also had the fact that it's a men's only field um, for professionals. And so, you know, in a lot of media environments, that group of motos would have probably been spread out further across the field had there been both a men's and women's race there. Um, when you're looking at, you know, reviewing regional championships and everything else, do you think bringing those fields together to kind of theoretically spread the media contingency out a little bit more um, be something that you would consider as part of that review process? I mean, I, I think that we felt and feel that that the amount of motos that we had covering the front of the race was safe and and that the plan that we had was was one that is suitable. Um, it's perfectly conceivable that if we had both the men and the women racing, we would have had more motos spread across the men's or the women's field. But I think the, the key thing is that like we believe we put a safe moto plan in place. And, um, and I think we're going to take a hard look at, at whether the assumptions that we made around what is the safe and the appropriate number of motos make sense for us going forward. Well, you know, Andrew, let me know if you want my opinion on that later. Um, because I, you know, one of the things that we talked about earlier on, on the podcast with Ben Knute was, you know, the number of motos out there. And in my opinion of it was, that the amount of motos to cover the race as a whole was probably pretty accurate, but particularly for that section of the course and that part of the race, it was probably motor heavy in my opinion uh, of watching it and just knowing how that, that plays out at times. And so, um, you know, as you're going on to, 
you know, feel free to give me a call because I've been on the back of a motorcycle for a lot of times. So no, because it's, it's tough because there's a, there's a, there's a point and, and I think people need to realize this, right? And this goes back to what the consumer continues to demand from race organizers in our sport right now. And that is, you know, more coverage, better coverage, you know, and, and they want it now. And so, you know, in order to do that, there is a, there's an, a, an amount of people that need to be involved in order to do that. And those people have to be on motorcycles. You, you can't be flying around 50 drones to cover an Ironman race. You, you can't, you know, this isn't the ITU where you can loop people around, you know, in one mile circles. Like in order for you to provide in any triathlon like race to provide the ample coverage that the consumer wants to, to have, there's a, there's a number of motorcycles that have to be out on the course. It's the same with the Tour de France. It's the same with any bike race. If they're going to provide coverage, there's a minimum that you have to have. And, and as the race unfolds, the race starts to separate. And so it's at, at that point, there's more motorcycles that are needed at that point than there is at the beginning of the race when everything is kind of clumped together. So that might be something to think about when when you're looking at the policies and procedures and stuff like for example if i'm shooting kona and i'm on the back of a motorcycle i don't even go to the right up the first hill like not in my wheelhouse not doing it i'm waiting until they get on the queen k because it's so congested up there and 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 that's part of the the, the policy out there too right like there's only so many people that are allowed to go up there. It's like it's in the energy lab. There's only so many people allowed in the energy lab. Um, and I think that that is a rule that that could be applied in situations like this. Yeah, I think that's that's um, it's a good point. And I think it's it's highlighting that a lot of the procedures in place that we have around access and operational procedures at our world championship events, it, it may be time that some of these regional races have grown to the point where we need to to be thinking more about those types of controls. I mean, it's it's uh, as as this last weekend made clear, um, it's not just the safety of athletes. And we talk a lot about athlete safety and we think a lot about athlete safety, but there's lots of other people on the course. There are the moto drivers, there's photographers, there's volunteers, there's staff, um, and, and, and we have to be highly attuned to the safety of all of them. Um, if we're going to be able to continue to, you know, have the trust of, of athletes around the world that we're creating safe racing experiences. I agree. Ryan, are there any other questions that, that the community wants to ask from reading the forum and things that we want to go after? Uh, I don't think so. At least not anything that's worth going after. Yeah. Andrew, uh, anything else that you would like to talk about today? No, it's, it's, um, you know, our, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're mourning the, the, the loss of life. We're praying for 
the injured athlete to have a full and speedy recovery. We're grateful that the photographer on the back of the moto is out of the hospital. Um, and, um, you know, we're going to do everything we can to take lessons from this experience to be able to create better, safer racing experiences for everybody and, uh, and to be able to better serve the needs of our community. Well, we appreciate you asking to be on the podcast today. Uh, we appreciate you being our guest. Um, we appreciate the honesty um, about the things that you have taken ownership of. Um, I know that, um, you know, one of the things that is, is talked negatively about um, when it comes to Ironman is the lack of transparency that Ironman tends to have on certain things. Um, a lot of that, I think we've discussed of potentially why that is when, when it comes to protocols and when things are discussed. Um, but it also is nice to have you on the podcast today and, and being able to express things that you are going to improve on and take ownership of. And um, I think not only do we appreciate that, but I think the community as a whole appreciates that as well. So thank you. Appreciate that guys. And uh, I'll see you at the races. Looking forward Definitely. to it. Thanks, Andrew.